0: morning friends. Are. Thanks Chris. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Those are some powerful words and we sing that but do we actually internalize that? Do we actually really want to pray that God would break our hearts for what breaks the heart of God? My friends, that is a significant prayer. If you have the audacity to pray that, God just might do something sacred in our lives. Pastor Lynn has been talking about the beloved community and how each and every one of us are already a member of the beloved community based on what God has done for us in Christ. And then last week, she talked a bit about how the beloved community must be a community of reconciliation. We must intentionally go out of our way to reconcile with others. In 1845, a quickly spreading mold began to destroy potato plants in Ireland, unleashing what we now refer to as the Great Famine. Many of the poor in Ireland depended on these potatoes as their primary food source. And about one eighth of the population of Ireland died from hunger or disease over the next several years. Upon hearing of this crisis, the people in Boston were incredibly moved. On February 18th, 1847, Boston's leading citizens held a meeting at Faneuil Hall in response to the news of this devastating crisis in Ireland. And with the failure of the crops for several years in a row, tens of thousands of Irish peasants were suffering from malnutrition, disease, and exposure. It's estimated that between 1847 and 1851, over one million Irish men, women, and children died. And the people of Boston realized the significance of this tragedy. And so donations poured in. Boston's Catholic community sent $150,000 to the famine-stricken country. Another Boston relief committee collected 800 tons of food and clothing and persuaded the U.S. government to allow a fully loaded warship to sail on a mercy mission to Ireland. You see, the people of Boston understood charity. They understood that you have a responsibility to help those who were in need. But then, the folks in Ireland who were receiving all of this, these gracious acts began to see Bostonians as their friends. So many of them who were fortunate to flee the country chose to come specifically to Boston because of Boston's charity. And this is why there are many Irish in Boston. But upon arriving in Boston, these Irish immigrants were in for a rude awakening. It is said that the Bostonians pointed and laughed at the first immigrants as they were stepping off the ships, as they were wearing clothes that were 20 years out of fashion. The people of Boston began taking advantage of the Irish. They forced them into the unskilled jobs that no one else wanted. The landlords began taking advantage of them. They began subdividing houses in South Boston forcing Irish families to live in a single nine-by-eleven-foot room with no water, sanitation, ventilation, or daylight. You see, at this point in time in history, there was no enforcement of sanitary regulations or building codes or fire safety codes. Landlords could do as they pleased. And so a single-family three-story house along the waterfront that once belonged to a prosperous merchant could be divided room by room into housing for hundreds of Irish, bringing about quite a lofty prophet. You see, the people of Boston understood charity, but not hospitality. They were willing to help from a distance, right? I'm willing to send you money. I'm willing to help you over here. But if you come to where I am and start messing stuff up, I want nothing to do that. See, the people of Boston understood charity, but not hospitality. I mean, as long as we do our good deeds, we're off the hook from actually welcoming others into our lives, right? As long as we go to class, donate a little money, and occasionally help others, we don't actually have to reach out and demonstrate hospitality to those who are different than us, do we? Jesus might disagree. Hear these words out of John chapter 4. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had went into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? You see, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans, the writer of the Gospel of John tells us. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and his sons and his flocks that drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go tell your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is The story continues, but I'm going to stop there because I got a little timer up there. But this is known as the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And, you know, too often when we read the Bible, we interpret things based on how we understand the world. We interpret things based on our own worldview and our own limited perspective. And by doing so, we might miss out on the actual truth that is layered within the text. Sometimes we need to take a moment and step back and say, what was historically going on in this time? What was actually happening in this culture? And if we can understand that, we can understand so much more what was going on. See, we've been reminded that we are a part of the beloved community. The beloved community must be a community of reconciliation. And I'm going to suggest today that the beloved community must be a community of hospitality. We must welcome others into our individual lives because just as we are beloved, so are others. So are folks that we consider enemies. So are folks that we consider strange or weird. So are folks that we consider a threat. We are beloved, but we are not the only beloved individuals in the world. See, often this story in John chapter four is told as Jesus went to an individual who was a sinner among sinners. You know, this woman is often painted like a prostitute, as someone who's had five husbands who's running through them so quickly, and the man she's living with now isn't even her husband. You know, I've actually heard preachers suggest that this is why Jesus had to go through Samaria to convert this notorious sinner, this woman of filth and sinfulness. And yet... Because if you, if you look at the journey, he didn't have to go through Samaria. And yet, by interpreting the text this way, we're actually reading our own current worldview into it. Think for a moment about women's rights in ancient civilizations. They didn't have any. They lived in a patriarchal system. Women were considered nothing more than large children. They were owned by their husband. And so, for a woman to have had five husbands, this wasn't because she was sleeping around or because she was a bad person. Men could choose to divorce women, women could not choose to divorce men. If this woman had had five husbands, it means that she had been abandoned, she had been isolated, she had been thrown away and kicked to the curb and told, You don't matter, you're not beloved. You have no value and no self-worth. I don't want you anymore. That's the story of this woman. Maybe some of her husbands simply decided they were done with her and threw her away. Maybe some of them died. The text doesn't tell us. But what we know is that in a culture in which women had no rights, this woman was broken. This woman was abandoned. This woman was hurting. And maybe that is why Jesus had to go to Samaria not to convert a notorious sinner but to remind someone that they are a member of the beloved community. Regardless of what anyone else has said or done to them, they are a member of the beloved community. Women didn't have rights. Jesus went out of his way to value this individual. You see, through this scenario, Jesus modeled for us what it means as a beloved community to demonstrate hospitality to others, to welcome others into our lives. Every one of us in the room is a member of the beloved community. Folks outside of this room are members of the beloved community. And yet our world screams that some are more valuable than others. Our world screams that many don't matter based on the color of their skin, based on their identity, or based on their beliefs. And yet God in Christ screams something different. You matter. You are a part of the beloved community. You know, you and I see significant discrimination in our world today, don't we? You know, about a year ago, I had the opportunity to spend some time with a dear friend of mine. We were out running errands, and we had to swing by the courthouse so he could drop off some paperwork. And upon arriving at the courthouse, we headed into the building, and we approached the thing. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The metal detector. My friend, who happened to be a person of color, went in first. The alarm beeped as soon as he went in and the police officer walked over to him and rather abruptly asked him to place his hands in the air. The police officer spent the next three to five minutes patting him down, checking his pockets, lifting up his shirt, going along the waistline of his pants. Three times he went over him with the handheld metal wand and I stood by watching. Then it was my turn to go through the metal detector. Now, I'm going to be real with you. I hate these things, especially in the airport. Y'all know the one in the airport where you got to go and do this, right? Those things beep on me every single time, right? These things drive me crazy. So then I go through, and I'm like, all right. I'm like, I'm going to get the same treatment, you know? So I start to go through, and it beeps, and the officer waved me on. Now, I was dressed in a pastor outfit, and my friend was dressed a little differently, And he was a victim of racial profiling and hate and discrimination. Just because he looked differently, he was discriminated against. You know, I had the opportunity to respond. I had the opportunity to speak out against this. But instead, I looked the other way. I didn't want to cause a scene. After all, it wasn't my problem, I thought. Throughout our time at the courthouse, I noticed several other white people walked through the metal detector and were waved within 10 seconds of standing in front of the metal detector. My heart became heavy. My friend had just encountered racism, and his friend, his pastor, looked the other way. I had an opportunity to be a person of hospitality and stand alongside of my brother in Christ, and challenge the blatant display of racism. But I failed. And I had to confess to him later, I had to apologize the fact that I stood there and did nothing. But he graciously forgave me. See, the beloved community ought to demonstrate hospitality to all, and that means we must fight against forms of hate, prejudice, and racism. You and I, as members of the beloved community, have a responsibility. But at least this wasn't the church, right? I mean, who knows if the police officer was Christian? At least the church is getting it right, right? I'd like to share another story. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to work with a church group from Ohio who was doing a mission trip to Boston. This group threw a birthday party for homeless children living in Roxbury, They distributed food at a food pantry. And then one of their their final acts was that everyone in the group, we went to the grocery store and bought a bunch of bread and lunch meat and peanut butter and mayonnaise and mustard, and everyone in the group had to make two sandwiches. And then we went into downtown Boston, into Boston Common, every person had to find someone to share a sandwich with, to essentially have a meal with. And it was a significant moment, it was a significant experience for these kids. It totally impacted them in significant ways. And upon returning to Ohio, their youth pastor kept up with me. Some of the students were so moved on this trip that they started serving at a homeless lunch in downtown in their city. These students were beginning to embody hospitality, not just charity. Remember, you can do charity from a distance. You can go on a trip and do charity. But to actually welcome others into your lives, that, my friends, is hospitality. And that is abundantly more difficult. But these students started embodying hospitality. They were building relationships with the homeless in their city, and they were moving beyond charity. But then,, ugh, it happened. One of the students naively invited a homeless family to their church, and upon their arrival, the family was not welcomed. They sat in the wrong place. They sat in one of the longtime members' seats. so they were asked to move to another row. And they were, suggested, they were suggested that, you know, you might fit in a little better at the urban congregation that is right down the street. The church needs to do better. We need to do better. As the beloved community, you and I have a responsibility to be people of hospitality. You see, charity often blinds us to hospitality. As long as we do our good deeds, we're off the hook from actually welcoming others into our lives, right? Jesus would disagree. You see, Jesus continued to go out of his way to model hospitality to all that he came into contact with, especially those who were looked down upon. You know, in this text, the Samaritan woman is labeled and judged based on her race, gender, and lifestyle. You know, throughout this country and this church's history, Race, gender, and lifestyle have been significant ways that we have excluded one another as well. While we have come away in these areas, there is still much more work to do. People are still divided based on race, gender, and lifestyle. And I believe that this division breaks the heart of God. Break my heart. For what breaks yours? As members of the beloved community, you and I have a responsibility to one another to model hospitality to all, especially those who feel unwelcome at our table, especially those who feel like outsiders, especially those who feel like they're not valuable. You and I have a responsibility. We need one another with different experiences to be speaking into one another's lives. Charity is not enough. Charity is still operating from power. I will help you so I can feel better about myself. I'm such a good person. I'm a great helper. I can check off my box of the good deeds that I've done this week. Aren't I great? Isn't our college great? We have ministries for those people. Isn't God great for pushing us to do that? This is not what the beloved community is all about. It's not about checking off our boxes. We need to move past the checklist view of this stuff. We need to move past the operating from power and privilege. We must be a community of hospitality. Jesus went out of his way to welcome a woman that was looked down upon, that was isolated, alone, and abandoned. Jesus welcomed her into his life. That is the model for us. There are people all around us, in your dorm, in your classes, within this community of Quincy, who are abandoned, isolated, and looked down upon. We are called to reorganize our time and schedules so that we have the opportunity to welcome others in the name of Christ. This is our responsibility as Christ has welcomed us, so we must welcome others in his name. Christ has invited us to be a part of the beloved community. And so we then have the responsibility to welcome others through hospitality into the beloved community as well. Think about Jesus's life. He invited all into his crew, Samaritan women, fishermen, tax collectors, Pharisees, prostitutes, rulers, sick people, demon possessed, naked people, and everything in between. Jesus' life testified that the kingdom of God is made up of all kinds of people, especially those who were considered different or unacceptable. Jesus' life modeled hospitality. Does yours? Jesus continually invited others into the beloved community. Do we? And Jesus reached across racial barriers to welcome others. Do we? The story of the Samaritan woman is not a story about Jesus having to go through Samaria to convert this notorious sinner. But it's a story that is a model for us as to how to live our lives. Do we truly follow Christ to broken and desperate circumstances to find Christ there? Charity blinds us to hospitality. You know, it's a lot easier to admire Jesus than to follow him. Because I can admire Jesus from a distance, right? I can sing songs and read my Bible And be on fire for Jesus from a distance. But do I actually follow him to dark, desperate, and broken circumstances? Do I actually follow him to the places where others do not want to go because they fear for their safety? Are you an admirer or a follower? Is your life marked by charity, helping others from a distance, or is your mar- your life marked by hospitality, welcoming others into your life as Christ has welcomed you? Yesterday, Jay Gavoni and I lead a men's discipleship group. Plug on Tuesdays at two, which was not yesterday. Yeah, it's Wednesday. Yeah, it was yesterday. And Jay brought a devotional that he got in an email that really, really resonated with me and I thought connected really well with where I was going this morning. So I asked him permission to share it and he said he was going to email it to me, but what do you know? He actually gave me a copy of it, so we're good. So there's a Orthodox theologian and activist by the name of Jim Forrest. And he writes these words. If I cannot find the face of Jesus in the face of those whom I regard as enemies, if I cannot find him in the unbeautiful and damaged, if I cannot find him in those who have the wrong ideas, if I cannot find him in the poor and defeated, then how will I find him? In bread and wine, or grape juice, or in life after death. Did you catch that? If I cannot find the face of Jesus in whom I regard as enemies, if I cannot find the face of Jesus in unbeautiful and damaged, if I cannot find the face of Jesus in those who have the wrong ideas, if I cannot find the face of Jesus in the poor and the defeated, then how in the world will I find him in life after death? If I do not reach out to this world, to those whom he has identified, then why do I imagine I want to be with him and them in heaven? Why would I want to be for all eternity in the company of those I have avoided every day of my life. I'm going to say that last line one more time. Why would I want to be for all eternity in the company of those who I have avoided every day of my life? The beloved community must be a community of hospitality. Please stand as Dr. McCoy comes up and offers our benediction this day. Receive this benediction today. As we go from this place, may we go to serve God with love and as members of this beloved community. May we be ready to have our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God. May we make room in our schedules and at our tables for unexpected guests. May we see, may we find the face of Christ in every person that we meet. And in recognition of the good gifts that we have received from God, will you join me in singing? Praise God from whom